Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in such wonderful worship this morning. Well, we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, starting in chapter 4 in the middle. I'll tell you when we get there. But um, have you ever wondered or imagined what it would have been like to actually be an eyewitness to the powerful miracles that Jesus Christ performed when he was on the earth? I'm sure you have, actually, many times. But the task is very challenging, of course, as we try to do that because we have to try to put ourselves back in a different time. We have to put ourselves back in a different culture and experiences. And of course, when Jesus was here, that was a unique time in the history of redemption. No other time like it, where the divine Messiah himself was here and did miracles quite frequently. And, uh, you know, we don't often witness such open displays of power. And even when we do, it still isn't with Jesus physically present among us. And as often it is to ponder these miracles that Jesus performed and be thankful that God has given us the apostolic record that we have them in the Bible, but have you ever noticed how at the same time it's very possible for us to read the gospel accounts and pass right over the miracles as if nothing happened? Or as if, well, that's what Jesus does. He does miracles and you just sort of move on to the next sentence. It's sort of funny how we are as people, isn't it? And so sometimes we actually even take the miracles of Jesus that we read in the Bible for granted. How could we do that? Well, let's try not to do that this morning. Let's set our minds to observe what Jesus does here in our passage and reflect upon it and rejoice in who he is as our Lord and Savior. So let me open us in prayer and we'll look at the scripture of this together. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the eternal Son of the Father the one who came from glory to live among us, to suffer and to die, to ultimately be raised and reign on high again in the glory you had with the Father before, and we look forward to the final redemption at your return. We pray this morning that as we look at the scriptures that you've given to us so that we can know you better, that you would accomplish that in our hearts this morning by the power of your Spirit that indwells us, that crafted your word, that we would see you for who you are in all of your wonder and glory. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we observed Jesus launching his public ministry back in chapter 4, verse 14 of Luke's gospel. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And we heard him teach in that synagogue, he, te he taught from Isaiah 61. And so the story began, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we heard Jesus teach as the Spirit-anointed, promised prophet, the prophet of the end times who would come, the eschatological prophet that would come and proclaim a gospel of a new age of salvation. Well, today, we're going to observe from Jesus' early Galilean ministry a typical day in the life and ministry of Jesus. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. It's also printed in your bulletin for you. 
And you picture in your mind this <clears throat> Sabbath day's ministry at Capernaum. It's, it's known as the day of power. And so we read, in, beginning in verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them, and Demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So just as Luke introduced us to the teaching of Jesus by telling us the story of his inaugural sermon that he gave in Nazareth, he's now introducing us to the works of Jesus by telling us the story about this day of power in Capernaum. And we're to be amazed at Jesus' teaching authority and his power over demons and illnesses as the divine Messiah. And so Luke traces this particular day in Jesus' ministry that gives us really a sense of the whole of his ministry. And so we, you see we go through a lot of different stories all at once. We have the general work stated in verses 31 and 32, and then there's that synagogue event with the demon, and that forms the first part where the Holy One of God teaches and expels demons. And then in the second part, where we're talking about the Son of God continues healing and preaching. We have these stories of him going to Simon's home, and then the stories at the end of the day, and then the story the next morning, and what takes place then. There's a lot of powerful activity to observe in this passage this morning. But we should also notice that what rises above in Luke's presentation still is Jesus' teaching. So I want you to take a look again at the opening verse and the closing section. It's all about Jesus' teaching and preaching. It gives context, it gives meaning to the story. So in verse 31 we read, He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching. And then at the end of the presentation, in verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So let's observe and consider and be amazed at Jesus' teaching and the power that he possesses, his authority over the demonic world and the world of illness. So, the Holy One of God teaches and expels demons. And so here we have this, his teaching in verses 31 and 32. 
And then we have the exorcism that takes place in 33 to 37. So I'll read it again. It just simply says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now Capernaum is uh, in the district of Galilee. It's on the northwest shore of the sea. And it would actually become Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry. And the kind of ministry that he's been doing in Galilee has already been recorded for us in Luke. He's going around teaching and healing and doing miraculous things. And here it says that he was teaching, probably meaning that he's been doing this for a while. His popularity has been starting to rise. And it's really a set-up summary statement for uh, us as we read through Luke. It's introducing this very, very unusual day for us to appreciate. So as we follow along in Luke, the first thing that really stands out isn't is the contrast with the people at Nazareth. We have the congregation here. They're amazed at his teaching, but the congregation in Nazareth was filled with rage, and they took him outside in the middle of the sermon and tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Perhaps Jesus learned his lesson and taught something nicer. No, I don't think so. But, but maybe he did teach them different things. Maybe he actually did some miracles for the people there because you know, he wouldn't do any in his hometown. Maybe. But we can plainly see this radical difference between the people who believe Jesus for who he says he is and the people who hate him for who he says he is. In fact, it takes us back to the opening of Luke's gospel in chapter 2. And again, the prophecy from Simeon comes true so soon. Luke 2.34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And that's what Jesus did in teaching. This prophecy continues to be fulfilled. Well, these people are amazed at his teaching because he taught them with authority. He taught them with absolute authority, with a direct, focused explanation of Scripture, not with a chain of references like the rabbis would typically do at the time. He taught them with clarity and decisive interpretation on the meaning of passages, not with the cautious reasoning of a normal teacher. And of course, it's not just the style that's going on here. He would teach Scripture as if it's alive and divine. And that fulfillment is imminent because he's on the scene. He's not using Scripture moralistically, looking for principles and guidelines and rules so that he can make up a self-righteous religion that the people were so eager to follow. He wasn't there to preserve some kind of a cultural religion. I mean, you can imagine the experience. Surely you've seen this or experienced it many times in your own own life when certain passages or doctrines just all of a sudden become clear at a new level in your mind and in your heart. The Holy Spirit has enlightened you. And it's usually through a teacher or two who's amazed you. Perhaps the best parallel, though, is your actual day of salvation when your spiritual blindness was removed and, you're, and, and you were healed and you understood Scripture. And maybe much of your life you heard about this Jesus, you read about this Jesus, you went to a traditional church and heard about this Jesus, but you never really understood what that cross was all about. And all of a sudden it clicks because the Holy Spirit enlightened your mind and you understood the Word in a completely new way. That's what's going on when Jesus teaches. 
And so now we're going to observe Isaiah 61 in action. So Luke 4.18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, now we get to watch him do it. Because he's going to expel a demon out of this man in the synagogue. And so we read, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have we to do with you, you, you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So a man in that synagogue that day showed up, and he was possessed by a demon. And he shouts out the identity of Jesus Christ. Now it's the man speaking, of course, but obviously he's under the influence of this demon. And the demon is described here as unclean or evil, indicating his character, and the work that he does. I mean, demons are opposed to the holiness of God, and they cause moral filth and physical harm to the people to the, they oppress. Their goal is to destroy God's goodness of creation and to thwart his plans for redemption. One clue of demonic possession or even influence is going to be an unusually high degree of very noticeable moral filth and bodily destruction in a person's life, even filthy living quarters. Now, of course, the greatest sign is opposition to the gospel when it's proclaimed. And that's what we see here, really. Perhaps he names Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, because it's an attempt to control Jesus by naming him. Or maybe it's a nervous response, because as we read in James, it talks about how the demons know who God is and they shudder. So maybe it was a nervous response, or maybe it was an attempt to thwart Jesus' plan because he wanted to reveal his identity in a certain way, and now he just spills it all. Or maybe it's some combination of all this, plus trying to just get Jesus to not meddle in their business. In fact, that's what the exclamation ha means. It's an expression of surprise and displeasure. And, and here, it really is a way of saying, leave me alone. Let us alone. In fact, some English translations, if you, you might even have that one in, in, with you this morning, simply translates it that way, leave us alone. And so that's the meaning when you follow it up with these questions. I mean, what do, what do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? They're spoken in fear, no doubt, and imply that there's been this long-standing war ever since Satan and his host fell in the heavens, and then, of course, the fall of humanity and their involvement in that. And with Jesus announced that he was going to come and save among fallen humanity. It's been going on for a long time. And you see, this holy one, when he shows up on the scene, takes the holy war to a completely new level because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has physically invaded the realm of the evil one. In 1 John 3, 8, we read, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
And soon, Jesus would send out his apostles, or his, his, and, and later the 70, and we'll read this in Luke, Luke 9, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And of course, we look forward to the day as it talks about in Romans 16, because soon God will crush Satan underneath our feet. So the demon-possessed man, use of this term us, might be a way of speaking for the whole demonic realm, although maybe here it's better just a way of referring to himself and the man he's possessing. Thinking that, you know, whatever Jesus is going to do, maybe he'll just cast me out somewhere. I'm going to kill this guy when he takes me down. I'll take him down with me. But Jesus sternly rebukes the demon, enforces the submission, demonstrates his power by silencing him immediately and forcing the demon to leave. Mark records the story as there was one final loud cry of anguish. And Luke particularly notes in his passage, he left the man unharmed. The result is the people are amazed again. It's the same thing. They were amazed at his teaching. Same word. Now they're amazed at his power along with his teaching authority. And so they ask, what is this word? What is this message? Who is this who has such authority over demons that with just a word can cast them out? He doesn't even have to invoke any other authorities. We should be asking the same question. I hope you are. And as a result, Jesus' popularity continues to spread to all the villages in the area. This particular event would be retold many, many times, as well as what he's been teaching them about the gospel. And I hope, you know, Luke's hope is that those who read his gospel account will continue to retell the story. Telling people, and I hope you're doing that, telling people who Jesus is, that he's the Holy One of God who teaches God's truth with authority and casts out demons. That's who Jesus is. The demons are real, you know. They're not imaginary. I mean, so much could be said, but on another day, and we'll see more in Luke anyway. There's no lack of them. But you know, it's not some poor, ignorant, pre-modern explanation for things about which, you know, we're so knowledgeable today. You know, this is what the demon themselves want us to think. So don't be a poor, ignorant modern who thinks he knows everything in this world or soon will because you're so educated. There's no reason to believe that demonic activity is any less today. Although Jesus certainly would flush out a lot of them when he appeared on the scene. And it takes many more forms than just bodily possession as an individual. I could tell you stories from my travels to Asia. I'll do that sometime later, not today. But my guess is that if you ask missionaries from Calvary Evangelical Free Church, they could probably tell you some interesting stories of what they've seen God do around the world in this particular topic. Well, this is the first encounter in the Luke's Gospel where Jesus encounters the demons and round one goes decisively to Jesus the Holy One. He takes him down. And there'll be many more episodes as we go through because Jesus has divine power in his teaching and in his authority over the demonic realm and we are to be amazed at this authority and this power. He's obviously God's Holy One just as the demon told us. Well, this is just the beginning of the day. I mean, what a way to begin your day. You know, going to synagogue, hearing Jesus teach, and then watching him expel a demon. You know, what else is going to take place? And so we read then in verses 38 to 44, the rest of the day, after the synagogue, Jesus goes to Peter's home, 
uh, for the post-Sabbath meal. And then Luke records Jesus' activities at sundown. And then the next morning. And all of these three stories are really briefly recorded, like moving through them quickly to help us get the feel for Jesus' ministry as we read through the Gospel of Luke. And that's our goal this morning as we read it, is to capture that in our minds and hearts as we read through this so that we understand where Luke's going as he tells us so much more about our Jesus. So in verses 38 and 39, we read about the healing of Simon's mother-in-law. And then there are more healings and exorcisms in verses 40 to 41. And then finally in 42 to the end, Jesus is in solitary prayer and then preaches elsewhere. And so the day continues, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now Simon has a home in Capernaum. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us that he's from Bethsaida, which could be nearby, or maybe, maybe he's moved. But we'll get to know Simon Peter a lot better. Uh, in fact, in our very next episode, in, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, uh, it's where Jesus starts calling him and others, and Luke saves this particular story because he wants to present it to us in a very interesting way. But Jesus, Simon Peter, and some others, we know from the Gospel of Mark that Andrew and James and John are also in the group, and they're all going to Simon's house for the post-Sabbath meal. It's somewhat similar to our traditional Sunday meals after church. And so his mother-in-law is staying with him because she's sick. And maybe she lives there all the time, we don't know. But she had a high fever, and this word likely implies some very serious medical condition. And so they made a request from Jesus, probably Simon and probably the others, for help. Most likely, would you heal her? I mean, you've been doing it all over the place. Can you heal my mother-in-law? And this was likely the point from the start anyway. Maybe they even discussed it on the way to the house. But Jesus simply stands over her and takes her hand, according to Matthew and Mark, while she's lying in bed and rebukes the fever and helps her get up. And rebuke is the same word here in the original language that was used with the demon earlier. So either the, the fever is personified here, could be the result of a demon, but most likely not the case in this particular situation. It's personified. And it's noted that just like the demons have to obey, so does illness. The fever instantly left at Jesus' command, and it's seen in the fact that she immediately gets up in gratitude and serves Jesus and his friends. What an astounding miracle. I mean, and compassionate blessing on this family. I mean, we don't often see such healing because it's out of God's ordinary means of healing us and healing our bodies. But sometimes we see these things, and we greatly rejoice when God does this, but could you imagine actually seeing Jesus himself do it? That would be amazing. Well, there's more healings and exorcisms to come in this particular day. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because he knew, because they knew that he was the Christ. Well, the Sabbath is over and the sun sets. And so, as soon as that happens, the people start running to Jesus. 
I mean, you can almost see them at the starting line just sort of waiting for the sun to set and then they take off at the signal and they all run to Jesus. You know, if you and I were in the village at the same time, we'd be doing the same thing to get to Jesus. They're bringing a variety of cases of illnesses to him. Some of them even include a demon possession, it says. And Jesus would lay his hands on all the sick and heal them all, indicating there's no disease he can't heal. And the note of healing them all here should be recognized because most of the time Jesus didn't do this. I mean, he rarely ever healed all in a particular group. He would just heal some. This is an unusual day. And his laying on of hands would communicate his blessing, his personal touch and care for these people, and would show that he himself is the source of the healing of their bodies and their souls. I mean, how eager we ought to be to run to Jesus to receive the healing of our souls, spiritual salvation, and the promise of resurrection, because ultimately our bodies will be healed. Do you want to be healed from death? Then run to Jesus. And the demons are also coming out of many people, it says. They would, just like the one earlier in our story today, proclaim the identity of Jesus. This time they're shouting, Son of God. Jesus didn't want his divine messiahship proclaimed so early in his ministry and so openly because it might lead to some more misguided political revolutionary ideas that were common among the people when the Messiah would show up. That's what we do as people. We tend to put our hope in people, not in God. And besides, he wanted a gradual revealing of his identity, and he wanted those who would be his true disciples to really understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Besides, Jesus doesn't want to take away them to take away the glory that he would have to be the one to proclaim who he is. And besides, I mean, it's not a very good endorsement to have a demon say that you're the son of God. So, and yet, who knew Jesus was using the demons at the same time? I mean, he knows what's going on. He's playing with them like a cat plays with a mouse. That's what he's doing with the demons almost all the time as you read about it. And it's amazing to note the irony in the passage, isn't it? So the demons know exactly who Jesus is and proclaim it out loud while the people are still confused. Even though the demons are telling them and Jesus just got done preaching and Jesus is doing all these miracles. So Luke 2 is actually using the demons. They're a great foil. And so he uses them to retell the story to us. Besides, it's no longer a secret. It was only a secret at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then it was no longer a secret. It's the secret that's supposed to be proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah who can save you from your sins. Well, then we read in verses 42 to 44, Jesus going off to pray and preaching elsewhere. So in 42, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place, and the, and the people sought him and came to him, and he would have, they would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So in the early morning, it's still dark, Jesus gets up and he goes out to a lonely place to pray. And what we're going to discover in Luke is that this was a common practice of Jesus during his time here. He would often do that. And so Jesus is already gone when the crowds get up and they can't find him. And so they go searching for him. Simon's probably leading the search party. And they eventually find him, and they try to prevent him 
from leaving their city. I mean, it's only natural. They want him to just stay there and continue to teach and continue to do miracles. How selfish of these people, we might say. But, you know, then again, it doesn't take too much reflection to realize, you know, many Christians are actually like that today. They just want Jesus for themselves. Jesus is there to give me a better life. I want Jesus to help me build my Christian club, often called the church. Jesus is there to create a Christian culture that I want to raise my family in. We want him just for ourselves. And American evangelicals are especially guilty of what I would call spiritual greediness. And it goes along. We live in a society that's just filled with material greediness. It's just part of the culture that we live in. I mean, it's sad irony that so many Christians in America don't even realize what they have. I mean, the number of resources that we have is absolutely astounding to grow in the Christian life. And we don't even sometimes know what to do with all this. But yet somehow it's Jesus for me in my life. But of course, this is not us, I hope, not you. We want to share Jesus with everybody around us. And we want to share Jesus with the whole world, especially the people who never heard him or heard about him. In fact, we would hope that if we were the people of Capernaum at the time, that we wouldn't try to persuade Jesus to stick around, but instead we might say something to Jesus like, Jesus, that's awesome that you're going to go preach to other people the kingdom of God. How can we pray for you? Is there anything that we could do to help you get that done? That would be the right response. Well, Jesus just leaves him anyway. That's a good thing he did, because then he went on to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to others. And the other cities, of course, are very specific cities that Jesus has in mind to go speak to. But in the Gospel of Luke, it has much bigger overtones about the universal mission of the Gospel to go to the very ends of the earth. And if you know much about Luke's writings, which includes this Gospel account and the book of Acts, you'll see that Luke has a very purposeful intention to tell us that the Gospel is for all the peoples of the world. And we're going to hear a whole lot more about that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Well, then we get to verse 43. It might be seen really actually as the point of the whole report here is that Jesus possessed the self-understanding that he was sent on God with a mission. And the original language here is what's often considered a divine must, that he must go preach because he's commissioned to do it. It's a divine urgency, and he is sent under the sovereign purposes of God his Father. And the same divine must carried over his whole life and even into his death and still on to the mission even today. At the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24 we read, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then verse 44 finishes Luke's report of this Sabbath day of power, and Jesus simply continues his circuit preaching. 
in the synagogues of Judea. The meaning here, of course, is, is the land of the Jews, or theologically speaking, continue preaching the gospel to his people. It's very clear that he's in Galilee. He's not talking about a political district here, as Luke records this. The Son of God continues healing, casting out demons and preaching. Again, with all this powerful activity that we're observing, it's important to remember that Jesus' teaching and preaching opens and closes our section today. That's what gives context. That's what gives meaning to these powerful events. Notice that Jesus sees himself here as sent primarily to preach and teach, not to perform miracles. But it's likewise true that these divine displays of power are meant to capture our minds and lead us to amazement that he really is the divine Messiah. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is both the ultimate divine teacher and the ultimate divine healer. Well, this is just one day, one day in the life of Jesus, where he expels demons from possessed people, he heals the sick of whatever diseases they bring, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. What an amazing day. And Luke is showing us who our Jesus is right up front in his book so that we're going to get prepared and excited to read the rest of it. So in chapter 4 at the beginning, in verses 14 to 30, he gave us a sample of Jesus' teaching from him teaching in the synagogue, his inaugural sermon uh, to begin his ministry. And here he gives us a sample of Jesus' miracles and what that's going to look like going forward. Can you just imagine what's next in the Gospel of Luke? And all the way through chapter 24, it's going to be very exciting. Luke also does a good job here, of course, of using demons to communicate his point. That's what demons are good for, you know, by the way. And of course, after Luke wrote the gospel, they're probably regretting they ever said anything. Because it's very clear Jesus is the Holy One of God and the Son of God, just like they said. And so Luke is telling us the story of the day of power in Capernaum, and we, and we are to hear and to see by our imaginations for ourselves who exactly our Jesus is, and convinced in our souls that he's the one that commands the evil one. He's the one that commands diseases. He's the one who is Lord, and we would desire, hopefully, a deeper communion with him in word and prayer. And hopefully, that's how the Spirit of God is working on us this morning, that we want to know Jesus more, not just know more about him, but that we want to fellowship with him and grow in our relationship with him. Now, in a passage today, Luke also showed us that the Holy Son of God liberates us. He liberates us by his teaching and his power, from our self-made religions, from oppression, from infirmities. And ultimately, all of this points to redemption from sin by the cross. But that's later in the story. And of course, that's really the real story of liberation. It comes with the cross and resurrection. But that's at the end of the book. So the kingdom of God has come, and Jesus has brought a new spirituality, a new power, and yet we still await the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God at his return. But the question, with all that Jesus is doing in liberating people from their ignorance, from their self-made religions, from the oppression of the evil one, whatever form it takes, from the oppression of living in a fallen world, and the sin and the sickness that is in all of our lives, the various degrees, are you free? 
Are you fully free? Have you been set free and enjoying the freedom of the kingdom of God? In the Gospel of John, in verse 831, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then regarding sin, Jesus said, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Our title this morning is Jesus' Teaching Spreads Amazement. Luke's intention is that we would be amazed as his readers as well and be so amazed that we would want to tell others about who this Jesus Christ is and to tell all the nations about who he is as the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we read this report, this account preserved for us, written by the Holy Spirit through Luke. It spreads amazement in our own minds as we continually ponder what actually took place that day and can imagine it. And we're filled with amazement for who you are, that you command demons, you command sickness, you command all things for your purposes in this world, but ultimately with a benefit toward your people whom you love. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for giving us freedom from sin, freedom from ignorance. And Jesus, we praise you that you are the Son of God, the Holy One, our Savior. And we want to know you more and more. And we want to have you display your grace and mercy in our lives even more as your people that you love. And we pray these things for your sake in your church. Amen. Amen. Please stand.